Hey everyone, and welcome to what I think is the seventh episode of Nerds on the Black. I'm your host, Zach Gifford. Today, I am going to be joined by Ben Clemens of Fangraphs. Uh, we'll be talking uh, the obviously there's no baseball, so we'll be talking the work stop or the labor stoppage, um, the negotiations between the owners, um, the negotiations between the owners and the players. We'll talk a little bit about the draft, then we'll talk a little more about the finances of baseball, um, which both Ben and I have uh, done our own research on recently. Um, give everybody a second to get in. Uh, as usual, had some technical difficulties. Um, hopefully, we have those worked out. Um, one sec. Try getting Ben on here now. We had a little bit of technical issues. I, I think I say this every time. Um, every time I, I I do this this podcast, that it seems like every time there's a new issue, there's only the same four steps. Um, but joining me today is Ben Clemens. Ben, I think you're live. I think we got there. Sweet. Um, yeah, I can hear you. Hopefully, um, I think we should be good to go. So thanks again, Ben, for joining me. Uh, Ben's been one of my favorite writers. I think. For the Cardinals, since he started over on Viva Alberto's, he graduated very quickly to Fangraphs um, and has continued uh, improving the work over there. So, Ben, uh, appreciate the time today. Yeah, absolutely, man. Thanks for having me. All right, so I guess we'll jump into it. Uh, We'll start with the – I don't want to call it the flavor of the day because that makes it sound like it's a positive thing. Um, But obviously – Rob Manfred, the owner negotiations uh, between the owners, uh, the commissioner, and the players is center stage with no baseball. Um, Just to kind of give, we all know this, but a short timeline, um, baseball shut down, I think it was March 12th, um, and about two weeks later, players agreed to play less games at prorated salaries. So if they played 81 games, they get paid for 81 games instead of 162. Uh, since then, we've had two or three months of back and forth that hasn't really gone anywhere. And then in the last week, uh, we've seen kind of things start to accelerate, uh, accelerate negatively, I would say. Um, hi, Tara. Thanks for joining. Uh, so on June 8th, MLB offered a 76-game season where they were going to give the players 75% of their prorated pay if a season was played. So 35% of their total and only 50% um, if there was no postseason. I think we typically have been seeing the headline number, the 75%, the higher number. Uh, but it's, it's important to keep in mind there's options to these. Um, on June 10th, Rob Manfred said he was 100% certain that there would be baseball in 2020. Two days later, MLB offered a 72-game season with expanded playoffs to 16 teams. Um here they offered the two tiers again, so 83% of prorated pay if there was a season, uh, so 37% of total 2020 salaries, or 70% if there wasn't a postseason, or 31%. So those, the, the baseline moved up from 23 to 31, but the top was pretty flat at 37. Um, one day later, the players asked when and where, um, and two days after that, Rob Manfred is now, last night, said he's uncertain that there will be baseball in 2020. 
The owners and MLB are demanding that the players don't file a grievance. Um, if they do play, the grievance would be that the owners didn't pursue as many games as they possibly could have. Um, players like Trevor Bauer think the MLB is stalling to get back down to 50 games to where they can pay only 35% of salaries. Um, the Athletic reported that eight owners don't want a season at all. And then the MLB conveniently, um, there's an MLB letter that was conveniently linked uh, or leaked to the Associated Press stating that some players and employees had tested positive for coronavirus. So in the last week, uh, we've gone from pretty close on the negotiations, I think. Um, they got up to 83% of prorated pay. Uh, the players wanted 100. You're not that far off to now Rob Manfred is not confident that we'll see baseball and almost a third of owners don't want baseball. Um, so Ben, I know you've been following this. I know it's made your job at, um, at Fangraphs notice a lot harder to not have baseball to write about. Uh, I guess from your yeah. perspective, what are you seeing uh, in the, in the most recent developments? Also for the people watching, I have Archer trying to eat his leash in my hand. So that's why I keep looking down. Um, anyways, um, I mean, I've been very confused by the last, I don't know, three or four days. So I just kind of thought the whole time that we all knew the script, which is the owners are just going to keep goofing around. And, you know, I think Daniel Descalso said it best where he tweeted out like, Hey, do you want six? And they're like, no. Well, how about two sets of three? Well, no. Well, how about three sets of two? It's like, well, No. Like they've just, they're just making the same offer over and over again. And if you look at the math, they were really careful that almost all the money they offered was about 50 games of season. Like they never did better than their, uh, than the fallback that we all kind of knew they had. And so I basically thought the owners were just going to keep kicking the ball down the road and keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. And then last second, just be like, oh, okay, I guess negotiations failed. Uh, okay, we're going to have a season. That seemed like the, the most likely outcome. And then over the weekend, I just think they didn't really handle the players uh, just giving up negotiating very well. Cause the, the players kind of have a strong hand in that they both signed an agreement saying that they get their full prorated salary. And the owners had written a bunch of letters to the players association conceding that they knew that was the case. So the players were just like, yeah, okay, cool. Like tell us when and where, which is also a very good marketing slogan. Like it's very easy yeah. to remember. It's very easy for them to all tweet and it sticks in your head. And I, I think basically there was just some division among the owners where I, allegedly the Mets, but I think a lot of teams are just worried about the money side of things and like actually do worry if they'll go out of business or not go out of business, but take a loss for the first time in their lives. Um, yeah. Like no, even when the Wilpons got scammed by Bernie Madoff, they made a hundred percent of their principal back. This would be, you know, a real first for them. Um, but basically, I think what happened is that the owners just didn't, like, they thought the players would cave. And so they've caught themselves in a lie where they wrote a letter to the Players Association saying that they accept that the only season will happen with fully prorated pay, and they agree. But they've written a separate letter to the PA saying that they can't uh, afford to pay fully prorated salaries. So whichever one they attest, the players should probably just file a grievance that they lied and weren't negotiating yeah. in good faith. Yeah. And I think um, they've kind of backed themselves into a corner where either, you know, 
if they go, they play now. They kind of lied about the negotiations to this point. Um, if they wait, then you have a grievance that they didn't play um, as many games yeah. as they could have. I think I think they've definitely backed themselves in the corner. To the to the when and where slogan, I think that's good as well because um, it kind of reinforces that the players aren't the ones who are deciding um, deciding that whether they're playing the games or not. I think that's kind of the message that comes across is. They're the employees. They're the ones being told what to do, when to show up, where to show up. They're not going to dictate the stadiums that are being played at. They're not going to dictate um, the health protocols. Those are going to be agreed to by them. But, like, the players can't say, okay, we're going to go show up and play with 10 teams in Texas, 10 in Arizona, and 10 in Florida. That's a decision that's got to be made um, by Major League Baseball. And I think that there's been – I think for casual fans, there's, you know, a tendency to maybe blame both the players and the owners. Um, I think the, the players are trying to reinforce that, look, they're just, they show up where they're supposed to show up. They aren't the ones who are supposed to be planning a schedule, planning a venue, planning the event. They show up and they play the rest of the business, the rest of, um, you know, be, putting on that show is up to the owners. And, and I think they're just trying to reinforce that. Um for the the offers, so Craig Edwards, uh, your colleague at Fangraphs, had a good yeah. article um, yesterday, kind of outlining the the salaries, the aggregate salaries um, under the various offers, yeah. uh, with playoffs and without playoffs. And if if we get down to the fifty four games prorated, which I think is where we're headed, uh, you have about one point four. 1.3 to 1.4 billion of player salaries that are going to be paid out um, in the last three offers. So the first offer, which was this was terrible, uh, the sliding <laughs> scale salary, the guaranteed oh, yeah. money for 82 games was 1 billion, so 360 million lower than um, than the the third of a season prorated offer. And then with the playoffs, they were only getting 1.2 billion. So they didn't even reach the, the the third of a season baseline that we've that they they've been kind of anchoring around. So that one was a real yeah. Real low I think that offer. the idea with that one was just like let's see if we can throw something like this out there, and we're going to go tell the people we want to give the players a billion dollars and see how public opinion goes. But it's obvious no one would ever accept this. I think also there was a a play in there to where like you're helping the people who make less money more. So maybe it's not necessary. Maybe, you know, your casual fan doesn't think it's necessary that um, Albert Pujols, whether he gets his full 24 million this year or not, uh, but it's more important for your rookie that he gets paid almost his full 500,000. Um, yeah. Although they was- didn't get paid almost their full 500,000. I think that was a big error they made where, if you look at the math, they weren't actually making that much extra money from the initial lump sum, even if there's no season. Yeah, no. Because yeah, that I was just like, that. I think they really goofed that up. Like, if they really thought that they could turn the, the, you know, the rookies against the veterans, they probably didn't do a very good job of it by offering the rookies like $10,000 extra to never get a chance to get rich. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. And I think... Um, you know, from there, they moved a little bit. The baseline in the second offer was flat. They moved the the playoff scenario up to $1.4 billion, a little bit higher than the prorated. Um, and then in the last offer, the 72-game season, uh, 
the no playoffs were all were 1.27 billion, so close to the 34 games prorated. And then with playoffs, they get up to 1.5. I think the issue there, and the way I've seen it, uh, the way I've seen it spoken to by players, is that if they're playing 72 games for a 54 game salary, they're essentially playing 18 games for free. That's one. And then two, yeah. they don't want the risk of their salary being based on whether or not the world is safe enough to have a postseason. Yeah, uh, there's there's kind of two problems there. One is like it's literally not risk free to them, right? Like, forget yeah. like working for no money. If you had a choice between going and give, taking the chance of getting sick and maybe getting your family sick fifty four times or seventy two times for the same money, like what? Like you would just take 54. That's 18 times. There's no chance of getting your family sick. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's a part of it. Um, and then again, back to the agreement, they already agreed to take less, um, less than they were, they were prorated. Now today I did read, um, an article by Tyler Kinsey. Uh, I think one of your former colleagues, uh, you can see how, yeah. um, you're very intertwined in my <laughs> baseball reading. He, <laughs> Had a he had an article today on Vivo Burrows, uh, where he mentioned that in the collective bargaining agreement, there's an appendix that says in a national emergency, which was declared in March, the owners can suspend their contracts um, and not have to pay the players. It's called the Uniform Player Contract or UPC. So really to pay the prorated salaries, the owners didn't have to agree to anything. It was something that they could have just enforced. Um, subsequently, yeah. the owners offered the baseline pay to where they'd give everybody, like I think it was 300000 minimum over the full season. Um, and then they also guaranteed the service time so they they said they would give everybody prorated service time um, yeah so this was like it, the march agreement yeah that was in the march agreements but so i think the way that maybe the owners are viewing this is that that was something because we've been saying the owners aren't giving any concessions that they've been keeping the offer that the dollar amounts the same but the owners might be looking at that and saying hey we could have done this unilaterally because of this clause so they've already given, like from the, yeah. the owner said, they've well, already well, given a, a year of of service time and they're giving the lump sums um, in the case that there's no season. So it's yeah. not like they haven't done anything. I don't, that That's true. Although they got a lot of concessions in exchange for that. They got the five-round draft, which um, was a you know, big deal for the owners. Yeah. Um, they got a, uh, a hugely deferred draft bonus schedule. So even the draft picks this year, are having salary deferrals there. They got some concessions there. They got to basically get the right that if there are no further negotiations, they can enforce the season. So like, yeah, the owners gave something up in March. And I think that it's very true that they probably didn't realize how much they gave up. Like they're probably a little bit annoyed that they gave up more than they thought, but that was a, a bargained agreement, you know, like, yeah. If, like, do we really think the owners just got charitable in March and then became miserly again? <laughs> in April, like presumably both sides agreed, Hey, let's sell out prospects in the minor leagues and we'll both get something we want. Yeah. And, and that's important because the minor leaguers aren't governed by the players association. So they were kind of left out to dry. I think the amateurs were sort of left out to dry here, at least a lot of them. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's a good point. So if we want to skip into the draft using that as a segue, um, 
you mentioned, so they went down to a five-round draft. Um, since there's no sports on TV, it was uh, covered nationally. I think it was on it was on TV. I didn't watch any of it, uh, believe it or not. I am not terribly interested in watching drafts. Um, yeah. So I didn't even I watch watched, the NFL draft, so. Yeah, I watched the first round of the NFL draft, uh, but it was just on in the background. Uh, I can't – there's too much time in between picks for me to care. Yeah, um, agreed. So, as, as a Cardinals fan, I don't know if um, – I assume you still kind of keep up with the uh, Cardinals coverage. The Cardinals oh, had sure. seven selections in the five rounds, so they got a compensation pick for losing Marcelo Zuna, and then they got a uh, supplemental pick uh, because they are a small market team, which is always a source of um, soreness among certain – rivals in Chicago. Um, So they took, they had seven selections in a five round draft. Um, I think, you know, I saw baseball America rated them in the top five drafts of um, top five drafts in their rankings, along with all teams that picked the bottom. So it was like Royals, Tigers, Orioles, Cardinals, and somebody else. Um, So I think, you know, just get your thoughts on to the extent you've, You've seen some of these guys. You've read the coverage. What your thoughts are um, on the guys that they did they did pick? If if you have any favorites, yeah. So I mean, my my favorite, which is um like in terms of people I'm rooting for, is Alec Burleson, who was the uh, the Ozuna comp trade or the Ozuna comp pick, I believe. Um, yeah. I don't think he's the best prospect among them. I think that's like pretty clearly just Jordan Walker. You know, like. Yeah, huge raw high school dude with like infinite power, and he's I don't know what six foot eleven. I think he's actually six five, but the big yeah. dude. Big um, Burleson. So I did this thing for Fangraphs where I looked for hitters that played at like not crappy colleges, but non-power conference colleges that were D one, and looked for guys who had the kind of statistical profiles that I thought were reasonably immune to like you know it just happening against really bad pitching. And Burleson was kind of one of the highlights of this where he was on a lot of draft boards because he's interesting as a pitcher. He can, he's in the nineties, like not high nineties, more like low nineties, but he, he sits around 90 and he can pop higher than that. And he's lefty. So, you know, people liked the fact that that was the fallback, but the real reason that I think he's interesting is, I mean, he has the kind of profile that you just don't see much. He hits the ball really hard and is really big for striking out so rarely. It's just, you don't see a lot of guys who can combine those skills. And again, he did it, you know, in what's like the American athletic conference, which is not, yeah, not the ACC it's close yeah, in letters. East Carolina. But, East Carolina. Yeah. So I think they play like the, I think probably the biggest school there is Cincinnati. Maybe. They have, um, there's some Florida schools in there. It's not okay. completely fake. Like it's a realish division. They, they're not like awful, but it is a big step down in competition, but yeah. just, you don't often see a guy with the combination of avoiding strikeouts and hitting the ball hard when he makes contact that Burleson has. And I don't really care about the pitching. I think it's kind of a non-starter and it's pretty hard to do anything with college pitching data without like velo and spin rates and stuff anyway. Yeah. So I don't know. I thought that he was an interesting enough prospect to get picked even without his pitching. And, you know, he went way higher on boards than a lot. 
thought it was a yeah, because I I think you had him as somebody who is like on the fringe of being selected, if I remember right. Um, so going, he went number seventy. Yeah, so he went number seventy, which um, obviously with five rounds, but the supplemental rounds, um, I'm not exact. I don't remember how many exact picks there were. Um, the other guy was interesting. So obviously Jordan Walker is a big big name. Mason Win, I think it's Mason Win, was a high school player out of Texas who he seemed kind of small, um, but he is only 18. He was drafted as a shortstop and pitcher, which on the board I'm looking at, they only list Burleson as an outfielder. I think Mosaic um, said that they're basically going to play him wherever he fits. Like he's, you know, at some point he's going to take naturally to one or the other. Um, yeah. So I think, I think he'll be interesting to watch. He's going to be far away. Um it was interesting to me the first three picks they went with high schoolers, which I the Cardinals for a long time, uh, and Kyle can speak to this, went for like power five experienced college players, at least from the pitching side. Uh, yeah. So Michael Waka is one. Uh, Marco Gonzalez, uh, he was out against Zaga, but he was another that he was an experienced college pitcher. They have a lot quicker time to the majors usually um, if things go well. Uh, it's interesting to see them take uh, one definite position player, one definite pitcher, and one two-way guy um, all in high school with their first three picks. Um, so we'll see how yeah. that goes. There's a lot of upside there, uh, but with high school players, there's a lot more room to miss, as we've seen with uh, one of our favorite prospects, uh, Delvin Perez. Um, I thought – so one of the things that – when we were when people were talking about the shortened drafts, so obviously we had minor league contraction that they need less players um, than they did before because they have less minor league teams, so they shortened the draft. I was interested to see what happened after the draft um, with with all the undrafted free agents. So they were capped mm-hmm. at a twenty thousand dollars signing bonus. MLB also came out um, and said that they. Uh, wanted to limit like the the continued education commitments that they gave some of these players. Um, I'm not exactly sure why, but uh, uh, yeah, that, that something that's not exactly a brilliant PR move, right? Nope, not great. Um, but so I, I was looking through that. The Cardinals signed eight undrafted free agents, um, so bring their total kind of draft class to 15 players. I was flipping through. Uh, the data that's available and it looked like the average was probably about five undrafted free agents per team. So you're probably looking at a normal draft class being anywhere from 10 to 12 players. Um, And then looking at the rounds. So obviously the first round is your biggest, your biggest hit rate for guys who are future major league players. After that, the percentages drop pretty, pretty consistently. So essentially, in my mind, we essentially lost rounds 11 to 20 of the draft. Um, Zach, if you don't tell us you hate racism, we'll have to assume you're a racist. I don't know who this is, but I do hate racism. Um, yes, I, I hate racism. Black Lives Matter. Uh, so I was flipping through. We basically lost rounds 11 to 20 in my mind. For those rounds, there's basically a 5% chance that anyone drafted is going to even make the major leagues. And there's even less of a chance that they're going to be like a capable major leaguer. Um, so I think, you know, we probably lost 
somewhere between 10 and 20 future major league players. There's a lot of people that won't get a chance and that that's not, um, not totally fair um, to them. So that's, that does suck. I think the biggest issue is the signing bonus and the cap at 20,000. Um, oh, yeah. And just how, and just the leverage that gives owners as a precedent um, to shrink the draft in future years and how they want to handle it. Um, it isn't, uh, I don't know. You're, I guess from my perspective, it, is, it does suck that there are people that lost their chance, but I think the bigger issue um, is probably the precedent that sets beyond yeah. the draft. I mean, one of the big things that happens, right, is by choking off this pipeline, you make it a lot easier to say next year, well, we can't fill our whole minor league system. So the contraction is going through regardless. So it's kind of like a, a coordinated thing where if they really want to cut back on all the players that are in affiliated ball, they just need to have fewer players, right? Like yeah, the, the map doesn't work to where they can contract 40 minor league teams and not get rid of, you know, what is that? 1200 players or whatever, 40 times yeah. 30. Like yeah. they need to get and if you go ahead and draft a 30-round draft plus undrafted guys, that's 900 players. A lot of those guys are kind of filler. And so it was just going to look really bad, right? Like baseball signs X guys and then just releases them all next year. Um, I think they couldn't really afford to do that. And so getting this concession from the players is a big deal to them because it advanced this thing they've been really trying to do. You know, there's a reason that in the off season, you know, way before we COVID had come to the U S or anything. Um, the big push in baseball was let's get rid of these minor league teams that, yeah. you know, that was the original, like owners trying to optimize a dollar out of 99 cents. Like yeah. they really wanted to cut down the minors to save. I don't know. They didn't even really make it seem like it was much of a cost. They just said that that was a better baseball operations way, which I can tell you is not something I've heard from any person in baseball operations on any team. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've not that I've talked to every person in every front office, but I have also not talked to zero and right. none of them were like, yeah, I'm just so glad we have less data to analyze and less prospects. <laughs> yeah. And I think for, for those guys, you know, that the hit rate, it, it's not at that level, you know, of prospect, there's probably not a lot that you can hang your hat on as being like a, a big indicator of what they're going to be in the future, they would be drafted higher. Um, or they, or, you know, they, they'd be on more radars, but you still, I mean, one out of 20 is still um, becoming a major leaguer is still important. It's still good. To, you need to fill your rosters at each level with capable players. Um, but the important thing for front offices is being able to find those guys that honest, I mean, that come out of nowhere. Matt Carpenter's one for the Cardinals. Matt Adams was one for the Cardinals. Um I think yeah. know, they're not they're not usually your stars, but they are um, important contributors to just building the roster. Yeah, and honestly, like you say, you can't predict these guys, and there's nothing you can see that's gonna like otherwise they'd be drafted higher. That's true, but if you have a seven percent hit rate instead of a five percent hit rate, that's hugely valuable. And if you look at the yeah. good front offices in baseball, they just consistently hit on these guys at not at 50%, not even at 10%, but they just hit at a higher rate than the bad front offices, you know? Yeah. yeah. And so I like think... every front office thinks they're the good one, obviously, like <laughs> they wouldn't work there. Otherwise no one's sitting there like, Oh, we're just so dumb. So uh, like yeah, every front office every... wants these, these looks. Yeah. I think. Yeah. And especially like the, the, the people who are in um, kind of working their way up through front offices being able to find 
those guys, I think, can probably help you kind of advance along and can be like a competitive career advantage to some at some to some point. Um, at least that's how it seems from the outside. Uh, obviously, the better you do, the more people are going to trust you and um, you know, your performance and career projection will yeah. reflect that. So having less chances also hurts those, those analysts. Um, and the scouts that are, that are in the front office out on the field doing the work because um, now they have a lower hit rate to make themselves. Look yeah. So I will have to anonymize this story to, uh, to protect some innocent ish people. But um, I know I have it on good authority, like direct from the source that lots of draft analysts and scout type people are graded on like basically their prospects advancement from, you know, if you sign a 20th round guy and in two years, he's a 48 future value guy instead of a 35, it's a little mark in your ledger. And, you know, a lot of these, a lot of front offices are very data driven in that way. Like if you find 17 guys and they return you 25% ROI based on the slot that they were drafted at, then you advance in the front office. Like that, that's a real thing that several teams do. I wonder how much that's like uh, the old like mutual fund selection where basically it's just a flip of the coin who's right um, versus how, you know, somebody who comes through and is and does well early. Like, is, I wonder if that's in a lot yeah. of cases. Well, like, obviously, there are people that find better, that have better models, know what to look at better and can interpret things better. So um, there's definitely people out there. Uh, yeah. So the reason that so. Uh, that this came up was a lot of front offices don't like it because it really dissuades you as an analyst from looking for long shots. Like true. What you really want in the 20th round, it'd be nice to get some major league talent and that's really good. And, but these guys aren't even graded on major league talent. They're graded on turning your low minors talent into mid minors talent. And yeah. uh, supposedly that really hurts like risk taking where you might say, well, I think this guy has a 10% chance of being a, or a 3% chance of being a star, but this other guy has a six has a pretty high chance of bumping up in the rankings. So you're like, uh, like picking stars is not the way I get ahead. I get ahead with an ROI. I should just pick all the guys who are likely a little underdrafted. So a lot of teams don't like that, but you go to this shorter system. It's just going to be that in overdrive. Yeah. Cause you'll just, you'll have less. Yeah. Obviously less kind of surefire bets early on to, to keep yeah. your ranking up. So exactly. Like, like if so you think about it, you're, you're going to pick the, the guys who in the Cardinals front office who drafted, uh, Walker win and hence the, all the high school guys first they're taking bigger risks for their uh, for their oh, draft um, rankings the Cardinals were not one of these teams uh, I don't know if they do this but they are not one of the teams that I know does it uh, I wouldn't expect you to say so anyways but if we yeah. and I also think this is more of a like 15th to 20th round or 10th round type deal right. like no one's going to be like you drafted you know Bryce Harper and he wasn't a star get out of here no one really cares about the first round picks the same way I don't think that's interesting because that's where, I mean, I, I guess obviously you got to take your risk to get to get your stars in the first round. But I mean, that's where you the highest hit rates are. Yeah, I just think the evaluation is probably a little different in the first round than the yeah. whole like uh, like no one is putting a mark in your favor if you draft a guy in the first round as a forty-five future value prospect and he goes to a fifty. It's like, well, okay. Yeah. Huh. That's interesting. That that's kind of funny to hear. Um, that and I think for the Cardinals we see um, and obviously we don't know that they do this but we do they did used to it seems like draft a lot of the 
the kind of college players with that had limited leverage or signing bonuses and that you could kind of get in and accelerate. So it, it's interesting to hear that perspective. Um, but yeah. hopefully uh, for these guys, hopefully there's a baseball season. I think it's going to be tough. Normally you'd ship these guys down to, I think probably Florida for um, a bit of extended spring training and rookie ball this year. Uh, there will be nothing um, going on for the, the players drafted, even if there is a season. Uh, maybe if they get a fall league going, you could see some of these guys, but uh, not the high schoolers. Sorry. Not the high schoolers. I mean, the college guys, maybe you're not going to put a Tink Henson. No, they'd be over well overmatched in, in a fall league. So it'll be interesting to see. Um, I think, you know, we worry about the, I, at least for me, I worry how this is going to hurt somebody like Flaherty who had kind of broken out. I worry about how it's going to hurt somebody like Kisner, where this is a big year for his development. Carlson, same way. Um, but then, you know, you see the guys drafted, and it's like you're coming out of high school, you've got a chance to play pro ball, but you're not playing uh, until who knows when, um, probably next year. Yeah. Moving on from I'm... that. Um, so there was another – you had another article on uh, – and back to, the, back to the owners, unfortunately. Um, yeah. So when we talk about the finances of baseball – where I feel like people typically jump to um, either revenue. So MLB eclipsed $10 billion of revenue uh, in 2019. Uh, they point to team valuations, which are published by Forbes, and sometimes to um, like operating income, also published by Forbes. Um, obviously, those are three important metrics to look at. Um, and the team valuations are the ones I see used the most against the owners. Um, so in 2002, the average team value or average franchise value was under 300 million. 12 years later in 2014, it was at about 800 million. And now just six years after that, we're over 1.8 billion for the average team value. Um, for, Not bad. Right. And, and yet we see the owners, uh, the owners are crying poor, um, cash poor at least. So one of the things you did, and I'll let, I'll let you kind of talk through it to the, to the extent you want, but you went through and you said, what could I do with a team that increases in value like the major league teams have, but is still cash poor? Um, and I think that is, uh, is you know, a really good way to look at what is probably happening in a lot of these MLB teams. Yeah. So basically, like, I was just very curious that, the owners cried poor in a very specific way. Um, they talked about how none of them take cash out of the team. And I thought, well, what? Like, that's not a great <laughs> reason to say that you're poor or not. Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. Um, you know, if you have a like corporate finance background, which I actually don't, uh, you would think that's really crazy because, you know, holding Google stock for 10 years from 2002 to 2012 was an incredible investment and they weren't returning any cash. They didn't have any dividends or anything. Like they weren't holding cash. They just were like the one, expanding. The one I usually point to is Amazon. Um, yeah. Amazon that's, that's the same thing. In R and D or um, expansions and side projects. And, you know, they, they had negative net income for forever, but it was like, if yeah. they ever wanted to return cash, it was, it was a cow. Um, yeah. And also, so the Padres did a semi-public release of their books about two years ago now. Um, 
or maybe it was even uh, January 2019, so a year and a half. And basically what they showed was that they were breaking even on a cash flow basis because they were paying down debt. So they were actually making a lot of operating profit and just using it to like pay down some of the debt they'd incurred buying the stadium or buying the team rather. They, um, when the Padres ownership group with Ron Fowler had bought that team, they assumed a bunch of debt from the old ownership group. So they basically bought it cheaper with debt financing in like kind of a roundabout way. And so I just thought it's, it's so weird that these owners talk about their lack of money in these two very specific ways, which is we're not taking any cash out. Well, no one really said they were. So them saying that back means that's a talking point they really want to have. And then also Mozilla talked about, or not Mozilla, geez, uh, Bill DeWitt was talking about uh, that things weren't a great profit opportunity. Um, and I was like, well, that's a very confusing way of saying things. If you, if you really didn't think it was a moneymaker, you could say we lose money on this um, yeah. <laughs> or anything and, like that. And for the Cardinals too, they've, uh, so I looked a little bit at, uh, the numbers that are available on Forbes, and we don't know exactly what the sources of those are, but they've been at like 70 million of EBITDA, so earnings. Basically, that's essentially a proxy for cash earnings. They've been making about 70 million, which maybe on a margin basis, when you're during 400 million of revenue, maybe Bill DeWitt sees like, oh, it's only a 5% margin and or 10% margin, whatever it is. And he does, you know, for him, maybe that isn't profitable, um, but it is $70 million. Right. Yeah, it's, it's not like there are teams who lo- who in years lose money. I think the Marlins are typically one of them. Um, I think at Toronto a year or two ago lost money. There are teams in given years that Forbes reports losing money. The Cardinals aren't one of them. Um, they've grown revenue by $90 million in the last five years. They grew payroll by about $50 million. They grew a bunch of other expenses by about $40 million. And at the end of the day, they're still making $70 million. Um, right. And, and if, that, you want, if you view profitability as a margin, still they are making money, but maybe it's less than DeWitt wants. Um, the numbers we see, we don't know that they're how accurate they are. They're not, we don't know the tax structure. We don't know a lot of, we don't really know the debt structure for the Cardinals. So it, 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 there is a little bit of a cloud there, but it's hard to believe with the numbers that we have that for Bill DeWitt, this really isn't a profitable. Um, well, even business yeah. or investment, either either. So way the thing that I, the thing that I thought was so weird is, like you can have a business where you say we don't clear any money at the end of the year because our expenses are the same as our intake, right? Um, and that can be factually true, and those expenses can still make you a lot richer. Like, let's say that your job is a bank, and you're clearing fifty million dollars a year, and you spend that fifty million dollars on gold that you put in a gold vault. Well, you're not making any profit at the end of the year. Like you're just putting that into an inventory line item somewhere in your balance sheet. But yeah. the company's worth more now. You have all this gold, and yeah. the, the Cardinals have grown expenses. But a lot of their way that they've done that is by taking out debt on Ballpark Village, which presumably they're making money on. Like either that or they're really bad businessmen. But you know, they're renting out apartments in it. They're, I believe, they're renting out commercial space and also doing their own commercial selling. Like it's, it is, it can be true that you don't take in any net money in a year and that you still make yourself much richer by buying stuff with that money. You know, that's, that's a yeah. thing that money can do. Yeah. And so I looked at the Braves cause the Braves are the one team that we do have, um, 
full financials for. So they're owned by Liberty Media Corporation. And as a result, they, uh, in Liberty's financials, they do have to disclose the Braves and a couple other businesses um, individually. So I looked at that a little bit and that's, I'm, I won't get into the details of that. I wrote about it. Um, you know, I think I found it a little bit that I expected to find a little bit that I didn't, but the main thing was when you look at their cash flow statement in the last two years, the baseball and the real estate operations, which the real estate operations for these guys are about 10% of their business, uh, made a hundred million, $180 million in cash in two years. Instead, yeah. If you haven't been to Atlanta, their real estate setup is very similar to the Cardinals. It's a little bit different in that it's yeah. out in the burbs, but they built, you know, basically a mall around their stadium. Yeah, and it, it's called the Battery Atlanta, I believe. Um, and so they, they made $180 million of cash off their baseball and real estate or development operations, whatever you want to call it. But then they to make sure that their cash kind of stayed the same, they either paid down debt or they put more money into that real estate development. And so net cash, they were, you know, they made 10 million over those two years, which, you know, 10 million when you're doing 400 million of revenue, like that, you can kind of, that's basically flat. Uh, Yeah. But now they've put $200 million into assets. They've paid down some debt. If Liberty were to ever sell, the Braves, which there's rumor that they were going to a few years ago, uh, they would net more money now than they would have uh, would have before. Um, obviously, it's tougher to sell a team right now with coronavirus. Um, there probably aren't a ton of buyers that want to buy into a labor stoppage. So I do think there is a little bit of complication when we when we talk about the wealth of owners in terms of the team value. Uh, because the values we see are pre-tax in a sale, they're going to incur a bunch of expenses. They're going to be taxed a ton. Um, and you do have to find a buyer and finding a buyer, as you saw with the Marlins, and especially as we've seen with the Mets, can take a very long time. Uh, yeah, although the Royals sold, so it's not that hard. Yeah, I mean, they um, do sell, but, I do, but there are expenses, there are tax implications, and it does, um, depending on your market and the, and, um, the demand in that area, uh, there do, it does take time. So yeah. the Cardinals are worth $2 billion. I think if Bill DeWitt sold the Cardinals, he would get he would probably net after you paid for the transaction expenses, you paid your taxes, you paid whatever your debt off. He'd probably net somewhere between a billion and a billion five, which, you know, obviously that's enough money for anybody to live on for a very long time. Uh, but, you know, I don't want to like I, I'm not being sympathetic here. A billion is a lot of dollars. But it is tough, I think, in my mind, to talk about wealth strictly um, in terms of value because that value doesn't pay for anything on the field um, unless you cash it out. They don't have a way to cash it out. In, yeah, agreed. But that's um, that's one thing that I think is cash flow in order to to make it look like they're cash poor. The Braves, yeah. Liberty Media even says in their in their in their report that the they don't evaluate um, the Braves based on like gap earnings. They have their own uh, uh, alphabet soup acronym that they, they evaluate earnings on. If you look at that, the Braves are quite profitable. So um, I don't yeah. know. It, it, 
I mean, one thing that has really stuck in my mind, I mean, I didn't do like corporate, like company level finance. I did kind of like interest rate level stuff. So like government bonds and things. But one thing that really sticks with you is like you can call things a lot of different names, right? And yeah. you can call this investment or depreciation or amortization or, but if, if you're just like accruing value and like increasing net present value over time, uh, you can store it wherever you want. You can put it in whatever little bucket you want and it's going to be fine. People who are running businesses are going to be happy with that. You can play all the debt games you want, you know, pay down debt at some times, run it up at others. Like that's fine. You can do any of that. But the key point is like increase in like present value over time. And baseball teams seem really good at that, even if they dress it up fancy. Yeah. And I have, I think a little, I have more of a corporate finance background than you. So when I kind of reading into a lot of this, um, it fits a little bit into what I see um, day to day, at least now. So yeah, agreed. The, I mean, the big thing, these, the owners are in here. One, they're in here because it's probably fun to own a baseball team. Two, they're in here because for Bill DeWitt, take him as an example, when he bought the team in 1995, he bought it for $150 million. Today, it's worth about $2 billion. Um, regardless of the tax implications and the cost of selling and the time it takes to sell, that's a crazy amount of return, a crazy amount of money. Yeah. And anybody would take uh, would take that. I think one thing that has kind of come out of uh, – out of these negotiations between the players and the owners. So we have the collective bargaining agreement up. I think it's, it expires next fall. Um, yeah. It's like right after the end of the world series. When the team or when the owners offered a percentage of revenue to the players, there was worry among the players that that would present, or that would be a precedent for a salary cap, which then the owners would try to work into the next CBA. Um, I think for me, I've so I have some thoughts on that. I'll get to those. When you hear salary cap for MLB, which I think not having a cap is one of the big wins of the MLB Players Association. Um, what do you think a salary cap would mean um, if it was if it became a thing in baseball? Um, I think there's there's two types. One would be a publicly audited revenues kind of salary cap where every team has their revenues every year and their shadowy stakes and their RSNs. Like the Cardinals have a stake in Fox Sports Midwest that makes it very confusing to figure out what they're paying for each game or getting paid for each game. Yeah. Um, if they had some publicly audited, here are the financials of the teams. And I'll note that's very unlikely because the teams don't even agree on each other's financials. There are frequent disputes around revenue sharing. Uh, and they are they have tried very hard to avoid publicizing publishing this financial statements. If you had that, I think it would be fine. Like that's basically what the NBA and the NFL have. Most of their revenue in both those sports is national revenue. And so there's a lot less reason to get fancy. Whereas baseball draws much more of their revenue from attendance and concessions and local TV deals. Uh, those are a much bigger portion of the baseball pie than they are the other sports pie. So if you tried to mirror a deal on the NFL or the NBA, but didn't like very strenuously define revenue, I think it would be 
basically a salary cap that never goes up. Teams would just find more and more creative ways of hiding the money they're making, putting it in RSNs, putting it in, you know, they'd, they'd sell the real estate to themselves at a loss. Yeah. Right. Uh, they'd, they'd find that's one thing with the Cubs that people, uh, I was reading this about Rickett's statement that the clubs don't make any money. So Wrigley just built up a ton of real estate around the stadium. They have apartments, they have a bowling alley, they have a Shake Shack. Uh, which I'm sure Shake Shack is the big winner there. Uh, but I think it's listed under a separate company in a separate LLC owned by Ricketts. So technically for the Cubs, they pay expenses to another Ricketts company. So it's really left pocket, right pocket. I'm sure there's tech, you know, it's just, it's a way. Yeah. For, and for like, let me tell you this. Look, we, if I'm paying myself rent, to come out and, go ahead. If I'm paying myself rent, and uh, one of my companies is essentially taxed because there's a, a revenue sharing deal and one of them isn't, I'm going to massively overpay the one that isn't taxed. Yep. Yeah. And yeah, it's an easy tax game. Um, I just think or, like these guys aren't dumb and they will do a very good job of hiding the money if they're capable of it. Yeah. And I, I think for, I, I feel like a lot of the kind of ancillary development around the baseball teams is it that we've seen at least you know it's been mostly i feel like in the last five years um maybe 10 has been ways to shift value and shift money around and now it seems like in the for for instances like this where if there is a salary cap if they do have to open the books they have ways to kind of hide the money that they're making i think it's most obvious with ricketts um just with with the rent with the rent structure but you know it's probably there's probably a similar thing with ballpark village i'm sure that there's some agreement between whatever ballpark village and whatever that business entity is and whatever the cardinals business entity is i'm sure there's some agreement where one's paying the other i'm sure there's different tax structures and it's these guys that are own the teams have one they're very they're smart business people and two they pay a lot of money I'm sure to lawyers to make sure that they get the most out of what they have. Um, and so, yeah, you know, I think like, like we said, it, there's a lot of left pocket, right pocket between the owners. It's going to be tough. Even if the teams open their financials to really figure out what they're making um, and what is really being brought out to the owners. Uh, but I think hopefully we can get steps in that direction. I think the players I think the fans are definitely there's more of a push to want to see that now um, than there was before. Well, I read some pretty um, I read some pretty good speculation just really quickly by Eugene Friedman, who's a a labor lawyer uh, or a negotiator, rather, and that one of the main reasons baseball was afraid of a grievance being filed wasn't the monetary losses because they could set aside, you know, they could work out the cost of that. But the fact that win or lose the players association could very likely get the books opened. Yeah. And you know, that would be bad for them for the CBA negotiation. Yeah. I think that's, I think I saw, um, I don't know if it was the same, but I saw something similar that like the big, one of the big hurdles is the owners don't want to have to publicly show, um, show the team financials. So, and, and I think that's where like, it's weird to me that, you know, if you come out and say, hey, don't file a grievance, either one, you expect to lose the grievance, or two, 
there's something that would come of the grievance that you really don't you really don't want. Um, and I think from what we've heard from from Manfred, I don't know that they would expect to lose a grievance. It doesn't sound like they want to incur the expenses to defend it. Um, but I, I think you're right that one of the big reasons, or I guess Eugene was right that one of the big yeah. one of the big obstacles is is whether they'd have to open up the books. One thing quickly I saw on the salary cap or a potential salary cap. So MLB had $10.3 billion of revenue last year. Um, the NBA is the team I think of most with salary caps, uh, especially because John Wall is going to be making $40 million soon. Uh, they only had $8.8 billion of revenue. So baseball teams had about $50 million more revenue per team. And I think with one of the, the things that, from my perspective that players, the reason they don't want the salary cap is because you don't want to tie – um, how much players can make to revenue. Right. MLB only spends $12 million more in payroll than the NBA. So if you took like payroll as a percentage of revenue, and the MLB, that's about 50%. Um, in the NBA, I don't know what that works out to. Um, whatever, $130 million, what is $130 million times 30? Uh, uh, $3.9 billion. Yeah, $3.9 billion. So... I guess that math doesn't work out either. Anyways, in order for that to that kind of payroll number to work out, the NBA, despite a salary cap, is spending more on payroll relative to their revenue than MLB is without a salary cap. And obviously there's concerns that you're going to bring down the salaries of the highest paid players because you have to field a team now with a cap. But I, I thought that was interesting. I don't know that it would be as big of a deal as it's being made. Every other – it's not a good thing that for the players that other sports have it. Um, but we've already seen owners are starting to kind of pinch down without it. There's been slow free agency. The value of um, the value of like a win above replacement has gone kind of weird in the last couple of years. Um, there's increasing reliance on cheap cost controlled talent. And so yeah. I don't know that I think the salary cap would be, would be most bad for, veterans who there's a precedent for how much they think they should make and now they're probably not as valuable as they were before there's a cap so teams are willing to pay them less yeah well it kind of depends if it comes with a salary floor right true like yeah if it's the cap of the floor and it i think for that to be even possible they'd have to completely tear up the service time model because if you just cap yeah they should but i don't think the owners have very much interest in that right no of course not so I think that like the owners would be happy to impose a salary cap on their terms. Um, I think a, having a structure like the NBA where, you know, there is a minimum salary that every team has. There is a, I mean, there's a little bit complex because there's the, the soft cap and the hard cap, whereas baseball has just a soft cap that acts like a hard cap. It's a little different, but yeah. the NBA also trues up their salaries to revenues like, players get either paybacks or, or pay-ins based on the NBA's actual revenues. Um, if you could get a system like that where they actually guaranteed 50% of the revenues in some auditable way, I think that'd be good for players. I think what the owners are offering is not that, right? Like, like I think baseball players have said this is a salary cap and so we won't take it. But one very real thing is, like, where was the offer for 50% of the revenue in 2019 when there was a lot more revenue? Like... Obviously, yeah. if you give me two years and in one, 
there's a recession and one there's not, I would be like, oh yeah, yeah, let's definitely share the gains and losses in the bad year. Yeah, and and I think you've seen more people coming out and saying that, you know, the to your, to that exact point that owners are willing to share the losses, they're not willing to share the profits. Players don't get bonuses when the teams are profitable. I don't know. Do players get I, do players get postseason bonuses? Even I mean, so, sometimes in the contracts, but I don't think it's. Um, it's actually interesting. The players have the right to. I believe I'm going to get this right. Half the gate of the first three NLDS and NLCS games, uh, half the basically like the required games. So the first three of the DS and the okay. first four of the CS, they get a share of. So this year they get nothing because there's no gate. Um, and then there, there also are postseason shares. I forget exactly. I don't know the exact calculation of those. There's some postseason money. It's not much. That's the reason the owners are like pushing so hard for the playoffs and they would prefer a one game season in the playoffs because they get a billion dollars for the playoffs. The players get none and, of that. And if you had a, if you had a one game season, that would almost perfectly fit their 16 team playoff model. Everybody who wins goes to the playoffs. That's true. And then the tiebreaker would just be like, I don't know, whichever team they like most, it's easy. Yep. Whichever one's going to, whichever one brings the most TV revenue. Yeah. It is interesting too, that, um, like, I think the, there's an obvious reason for the players not to want a 16 game playoff, which is that it's more games and they don't get any money from the playoffs. Uh, that, that seems reasonably straightforward, but I don't understand why the owners aren't, um, aren't thinking of that as like an advantage they can gain, right? Like the players offered it and the owners just kind of ignored it and said, well, all of our proposals have a 16 game playoff that the players don't get any money for. And I think that's like, it just kind of shows they're not really bargaining with any attempt to reach an agreement because if they were doubling the playoffs would be really valuable to them. It's just free money. Right. What's the, what are the playoff structures that they've, that they've offered because I know they have, I, it seems like at least, at least the most recent offer was expanded playoffs. Um, I guess, are you saying that it, they haven't made it more of a central part of the offer, I guess? Well, I just think that like, if you like one thing that they could do that I think would make a lot of sense is put an expanded playoffs and offset it by offering the players something, right? Like do it in a way that you think you can get something out of the players. Yeah. So say like, we're going to put an expanded playoffs and in exchange, we're going to guarantee you more money this year. Or like we're going to, I don't know, make a change to the service time rules in a way that benefits you. Like they could give some yeah. non-monetary thing in exchange for the playoffs, which are money to them this year. Um, that seems like a, a place where they could reach some kind of bargain where the owners would tell you that their big issue is that they're going to lose cash this year and they have cash flow issues. Um, it's so easy to work that out. Like, like yeah. the playoff is such an obvious thing where it's money that goes directly into their hands this year, which is exactly what they want. Um, so the players are giving them money this year via extra playoffs and they give the players something back in the future. Like if I were trying I'm, to reach an agreement, I would just do that. I'm surprised that deferrals haven't been a bigger portion of the discussions. But, yeah, but that's where it again, comes in that the revenues are that, that the owners are being so short-sighted to where like if you said for you know there is value in saying like hey look to, for the owners saying to the players hey we'll give you 75 percent now we'll defer the next 25 percent over five years the present value of that is going to be a lot less than just paying them now 
But I think that's a proposal that the players would probably be a lot more amenable to um, than just saying it's 75 flat. Um, yeah. So the players um, offered a very limited and like, honestly, not really acceptable to the owners form of deferrals in their first offer. Um, they used interest rates that were too high, basically, and it made it not make any sense. But the fact that they were discussing deferrals, I thought meant that the owners would come back and say, all right, your interest rates are wrong, but like, this is a good idea for us. It solves our cash flow problems, but they just ignored it completely and said, yeah. no, 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 we want to go back to uh, like this whole, uh, we're going to prorate your proration. And yeah. to me, that just kind of means they didn't actually want to negotiate this because like, if they did, there was stuff that they had mutual agreement on. Like the players have a lower required rate of return or expected rate of return than the teams. So putting money in the future is a good way of doing that. The playoffs are a thing that matters more now to the owners and the, the owners have lots of stuff they can give the players in the future. There's all kinds of like time shifted things if what they really care about is solving a cash flow issue this year. But I just don't think that's what they cared about. I Part of me wonders if this would have happened like instead of a year before the CBA expires, a year after a new one was signed, um, whether we would have seen a lot more kind of amenable, good faith negotiations, like you're saying, to where if you really are trying to solve a problem, there's ways to get there. I think there's probably a lot here where each side doesn't want to move and set an example for when they negotiate, start negotiating again next summer. Um and so, unfortunately, where we are is a summer so far without baseball. Um, so far, really, without any sports. I think UFC is the only thing that I've seen kind of stay on. Uh, golf is back, which is you know something. NASCAR's back, which is something less, in my opinion. Uh, but we're starting to slowly get things back. The NBA has a schedule. WNBA has a schedule um, for return. Baseball does not. Um, NHL is coming back. Yeah. The, to close out, uh, I want you to put your Rob Manfred cap on and tell me with what percentage confidence you are that there will be a season. And then I guess at this point we assume, uh, maybe you can speak for yourself. I assume it's going to be about 50 games. If you think it's going to be different, go ahead. But what percentage chance do you say that there is a baseball season in 2020? Um. So if I say 0%, does that mean I'm confident there won't be a season? Is this just like yes. the odds there will be a season? Yeah, odds that there will be a season. Okay, yeah. I'm like 15%. Wow. Um, I just think that the owners have put themselves in such a bind that when, when they attempt to enforce a 50-game season, given their various communications, they're just inevitably going to run into a grievance. The fact that they were only willing to restart negotiations uh within a with, with the players admitting that they are sorry not admitting but like affirming that they wouldn't grieve just means to me that the owners think they have a losing hand um and i think that if they enforced a 50 game season given all this nonsense now especially that the players would immediately file a grievance they'd say well you guys were just lying like we saw the bad faith bargaining tactics you did like you came on TV and said there was definitely a season and you came on TV and said there wasn't, you said we were very close on health and safety. And then you said you were very far and worried about it. Like you clearly weren't acting in good faith. And I think that, I don't know if they'd win, but I think they would have a good case. 
And so if you're the owners, I don't think you can really afford to press on without a guarantee the players won't grieve. So if they're willing Which to I give something up for that. That's enforceable. Can you even enforce something like that? I, um, I don't know that you can. Yeah. So I I'm not a lawyer. I guess there are. But my understanding is that you can. Probably. That, uh, yeah, I guess that you can write a superseding That's why I agreement. Sign the waiver before I go in, before I go on a on a mountain to ski, probably. So presumably they could do a similar thing. Um, I just don't think that the players are going to do that for a fifty game season, because like, why would they? What they will do is say, "Cool, we'll show up, um, and we're probably going to sue you." Yeah. <laughs> or, sorry, it's not a suit; it's a grievance because it's governed by a bargaining agreement. But whatever. Um, yeah. I just don't see how the owners are going to pull the trigger unless they can get the players to sign a waiver. And I don't think the players are going to sign a waiver unless it's like a 70 game season. So I I do wonder, and I don't know how the collective bargaining agreement works, but this is probably what my answer depends on. Uh, If the commissioner who in theory represents both the owners and players if he's the one, because my understanding in the agreement isn't that the owners can enforce a season, it's that the commissioner can enforce a season. If Manford comes out and says it's a 50-game season, owners suck it up, players suck it up, can MLB, can the players then file a grievance against the owners if the way it's that structured oh, is that I'm it wasn't the basically 100% positive yes, because he's a representative of the owners. Okay, that's um, what I wasn't he, sure about. I thought that he was technically a representative of both. Um, no, I, that no, he is the players' union does not vote on his uh, his okay. commissionership. He's a representative of the owners, so I think if he enforces something, and, and we we know that he bound. is basically um, a puppet for the owners. We've seen that plenty of times to know it. Yeah, um, to be clear, I don't even think it's basically. I think that's his job. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, and he was, I think pretty um, enthusiastically voted into his position after uh, C-League left. So the owners knew what they were getting. They knew what they wanted. Um, And we're heading into a weird time for baseball. Um, Hopefully, you know, it seems like every time um, I do one of these, they're now usually a few weeks apart because there's not a whole lot to talk about. Uh, baseball goes back from Memorial Day to July 4th to maybe never. Um, yeah. So hopefully we do see something different in the next few weeks. Um, I'm not totally confident. I wouldn't say if I had to throw my percentage out there, I, I was on uh, the a Birds on the Bat show podcast last <laughs> week. I don't remember. I probably answered the same question. Uh, my days blur together, so I don't remember my answer. Uh, <laughs> today, I would say... 25 because i like round numbers um, yeah i think i was at probably, like 85 before the weekend less than that. it's probably like if i i want to say 25 because i want there to be baseball um realistically i that's probably optimistic um we'll see i think you know the mlb is going to keep trying to show different tactics to make sure that they kind of, you know, look, the owners look more like the reasonable good guys keep trying to put blame on the players. I think that's what the coronavirus leak was all about, but we'll see how that goes over the next few weeks. Um, It sounds like the next few 
the next couple of weeks will be key towards moving towards the season or not. There's always so late you can start um, a 50-game season if you expect to have the playoffs at the normal time. So we'll see how that goes. Um, it's definitely at least giving us things to talk about. Uh, and hopefully as other sports get back, we can fill the void um, a little bit with uh, the void that we're missing with baseball. Hopefully we can fill it a little bit with other leagues that are delayed in the case that we don't get baseball back um, in 2020, or at least not for a while. Um, so again, thanks Ben uh, for joining me. You can find Ben over um, on Fangraphs, uh, One of my favorite writers over there. Uh, I don't know your Twitter handle off the top of my head. Uh, it is oh, underscore Ben underscore Clemens. Uh, Sorry, everybody. He's as good of a Twitter follow, um, in my opinion, as he is a reader. Of course, if um, hopefully if you follow him, you like the same. You're going to have to like the um, advanced kind of baseball stuff uh, yeah. that I fall, fall in the direction of. Um, thanks again for tuning in. This is Zach Gifford from Birds on the Black with Nerds on the Black podcast. Um, well, thanks. We'll see you guys hopefully um, in the next couple of weeks, and hopefully we'll have better news to talk about then. Um, yeah, fingers crossed. Yeah, yeah fingers thanks, crossed. Ben. Thanks, Ben. All right, see ya.